Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, a man who shaped the sound of the boys next door in the birthday party, and of course, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, not to mention record producer and composer, Mick Harvey. Mick, how are things? Uh, not bad. Thanks, Robert. We're doing okay here. How is COVID treating you down there? Has it really dr- dramatically changed what you would what had you had been doing before? Well, it's, it's, it's difficult to describe, really. Uh, uh, I think uh, it's, it's affected everything like, as it has everywhere. But uh, for me personally, I was um, by coincidence, by total coincidence, I was uh, coming into a period where I had nothing in my diary and. Uh, for the first time in probably 40 years, I came back from um, the UK and Europe where, where we'd been playing some some of the Roland S. Howard shows, the pop crime shows. And uh, it was the middle of February. I had nothing in my diary and didn't know what I was going to do next. <laughs> so I've, uh, it was quite a, a strange circumstance because it's meant that I've um, been able to begin a whole lot of new projects uh which is probably what i was was going to do anyway uh i was planning to start writing my memoirs because it was going to be this open space ahead of me and people have been asking me to write my uh recollections for a number of years and uh i thought oh it's as good a time as any to put that down even if i whether i publish it or not um just because there's a lot of uh lot of information there that nobody else has you know how that goes mm-hmm. so uh I, I found myself just doing what i may well have been doing anyway apart from the fact that i'm just meant to stay at home so it hasn't really impacted me that that badly apart from not trying i'm usually traveling all the time of course to do with my work and uh, i'm unable to do that at the moment there's really no chance to leave australia unless you actually apply and have a, approval for your travel plans you're not the very few people are actually able to travel internationally, so I haven't even looked into that because there's been no good reason for me to do that. So I'm basically, apart from not travelling um, and not planning future gigs, because uh, I'm doing pretty much what I would have been doing. So would you say that you're being creatively fertile in, in this period? Are you working on any uh, film scores right now? Um, no, I'm not working on any film scores as such. Um, People aren't working on films at the true, moment, true. as far as I can make out. So there's not a lot. Of, I suppose there could have been some things in post-production, but they're, they're nothing that I was connected with directly. So um, no, there's not any specific film compositional work around at the moment. Um, I am sort of trying to develop a couple of film ideas of my own, for which I would probably do the music when it comes around to that. But uh, they're they're firmly in the future, really. So, um, uh, how did that question begin? Well, just uh, musically, have you been staying creatively fertile? Oh well, uh, yeah, that's right. Like, and I think I think most musicians that I've had contact with are pretty much the same. They're, they're apart from uh, the ones who uh, have lost their source of revenue by not being able to play live shows, which quite a few musicians rely on. Most musicians I've been in contact with have been having a very productive time because there's no distractions. They've been able to, uh, if they're not depressed, <laughs> they focus down on, you know, using this period of time as a, 
a time when they can really go into a bit of hibernation and, and uh, come up with new ideas and write and, you know, develop new ideas. So it's been, I think most 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 people have been enjoying it, to be honest, <laughs> the, the, that, I've, that I've spoken to. Because, I mean, uh, uh, Melbourne's gone into another lockdown, uh, so we're in lockdown, at like stage four lockdown, what they call that, whatever that means, wherever you were from, until about September the 13th. So um, that may start wearing a bit thin, you know. It's It's been going on for quite a while now that people haven't been able to get out and about and I suppose uh, the amount of stuff people can do in a period of time is just starts uh, being like, yeah, well, I've done two months of that, so now I'd like to do something else, please. <laughs> I suppose a lot, a lot of people might be feeling like that. I'm not. I'm still working on a few different uh, like potential album projects and a, a funny documentary script and my memoirs. I've got tons of things to do. I could do with another six months, to be honest. Well, I want to take you way back for a moment. You grew up in a small town around a church. How easy was it for you to be getting the kinds of art that you wanted in your youth? Well, I wasn't... Uh, I don't know that I would say I was particularly interested in any specific art when I was younger. I mean, I was interested in creative pursuits, I suppose, or I had a relationship with those sorts of things, with music and visual arts and uh, and film and so forth. But I think it really developed more in my late teens. I, I think when I was younger, I was just interested in those fairly superficial, a lot of the superficial things younger people are interested in, you know. A lot of the time you're a bit lost and just uh, trying to fill in time, especially early teens. I think uh, people in their early teens are quite often just trying to work out how to fill up the space and these days, people aren't as bored as they, you know, there's a lot of boredom involved. Or, well, I, I wouldn't actually call it that. I don't know that I was specifically ever feeling that bored. But it, looking back on it now, compared with the plethora of entertainments people have at their fingertips these days, there was a lot of time where not much was happening. <laughs> and you'd be filling in the space with what you could find to fill it in with, you know, which very often when I think about it now was um, by the time I was in my mid-teens would have just been playing the same records over and over and over and, you know, things like that. So some of those albums from the 70s, you know, you just play them every week, twice a week, you know. Some of them you just, I still know backwards from hearing them dozens, if not, you know, over a hundred times back in those days. So uh, being by the church and so forth, we moved to the city when I was quite young, so, but I was always living next to the church as I grew up in the vicarage. But, uh, um, you know, art and create uh, music and things of that nature were not in short supply, I don't think. I mean, no, no more so than anywhere else in the world. Well, and then you started and, getting. Well, then you started getting lessons from Blue, Bruce Clark. What would you say that you learned the well, most from I your? I wouldn't, I wouldn't know that that was the. I wouldn't know that that was the uh, course of events. No, and this is a very much over. You know, me getting guitar lessons was really. Uh, I, I'm 
fundamentally self-taught. So, I mean, I taught, I picked up a guitar when I was about 14 um, at other people's behest, not my own. I wasn't even that necessarily interested in being a musician, but I found myself in a band because I seemed to have a some sort of natural um, uh, intuition with uh, how, uh, which direction the notes should go. And um, after a couple of years, a few years, maybe it might have been two or three years of being self-taught, I, I realised that I might have been getting into bad habits. So I went to get some guitar lessons from uh, this chap, Bruce Clark, who quite a, was quite a well-known Australian jazz guitar player. And he taught me a few fundamental things about how to hold the pick and uh, a couple of fingerings and things like that. And after about five lessons, uh, I decided that um, that was enough and I'd learned enough of him and went back to teaching myself and doing some things wrongly. So I don't know how much you would describe that as having done guitar lessons with Bruce Clark. <laughs> well, speaking of that, though, you say that you really like the composition of things. Did you think that you were ever going to switch from playing in a band to just being in the record studio, being a producer, arranging albums, I, doing that kind of a thing? I, I never really thought... I never really had a plan with any of that. I mean, I was just in... In the early bands, uh, you know, with the boys next door and eventually what became the birthday party, I was just in the band and um, all of us became involved in the production aspect. All of us were on the same journey there at first um, through 79 and 1980 when we really started um, finding our own way with the production and realising what needed to happen with that. You know, that was just a learning process. And... Uh, the notion that I would come out of that and be the kind of foremost producer person in any ensemble that I was part of or that I would uh, become a composer as such. I really didn't compose much music back then in the early days. It really would not have been in my mind at all. Um, I was quite happy playing in the band and helping drive something which uh, I, you know, I thought was a really interesting and worthwhile pursuit that had real potential to be have a unique voice and have an uh, and to have an input into something that was quite unique musically that was really exciting. And my role at the time was mostly playing an instrument or two and helping with the arrangements and the production. I was I was loving that was quite enough for me. So where it ended up later, like about. By the end of the 80s, where I was the principal producer and was doing all this stuff and playing in multiple bands, that was all beyond my wildest imagination and it was never my, um, it was never my ambition. I don't know how it happened, actually. It <laughs> kind of happened because I was able to do it and people began expecting it of me and... Um, I realised, and, the, you know, the compositional thing was strange too. That sort of developed through the mid-'80s and I started working on films occasionally and I suppose uh, ind indirectly from that, writing more music. And um, uh, I'm not really... It's still... It all happened quite organically and there was never any particular plan. So... Um, as much as it might be seen that, you know, I, some people think I'm quite a controlling person and uh, I suppose uh, would think that I'm quite ambitious and maybe it was all kind of part of a 
some great world domination theory. <laughs> really was not, it was really was really wasn't ever what was on my mind, and in a way, I was always happy to to revert to the original role that I'd had because I was always quite satisfied with that as well. But you know, when artistic opportunities and present themselves, and and you find that you're uh, able to work with those those materials and create things it's, it's it's something you just become drawn into so it was it was an enormous uh, fun and a great challenge and you know i'm still doing that now so it's uh, it's been a bizarre journey because i really didn't plan that much of it well speaking of it being organic was there a sound that you and nick were trying to achieve in those early days or did it just kind of evolve from playing yeah the, the birthday party sound really just kind of evolved um, there were certain influences there, but they're quite myriad, really, if I think about it. And if I were listening to those recordings today, I could probably identify all sorts of things as, as individual elements, which might not be so obvious when you listen to the, to the whole thing. As you know, in the early days, in the late seventies, we were. As, as a lot of people in their late teens are and early 20s, you're very influenced by other things. And a lot for a lot of people, it takes time to come out of being heavily influenced by those, those outside things that you love and find your own voice. Some people never do, but, you know, we were always on a mission to, to, to try and find our own voice and, and have our own sound. I think that was part of... The, the obvious pursuit was to achieve that in some way. And um, so by the by 79 into 80, we, we were beginning, we, you know, it's, it evolved. It was, quite, it was quite natural. We didn't really discuss it. it. It just sort of happened by virtue of the different styles of the people in the band. They're playing, how their different playing developed, how their different individual instrumental styles developed and how those fitted together. So... Um, then it ended up being a very, very original sort of sound that we had. And uh, so it was no, uh, it wasn't me and Nick doing that. It was um, it was everyone in the band, obviously Roland and Tracy, and who both had incredibly individual styles of playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the Bad Seeds, it... Um, the funny thing is, and I've said this quite a lot recently, that by the end of the birthday party, Nick, it was Nick who was actually saying he didn't really relate to the music that the birthday party were making. And I think he'd... Uh, I mean, he did there at some stage, obviously because he was writing quite a bit of it. So it... But for him, I think it was... Um, it was a kind of a vehicle for his lyrics and his live performance. And as much as he was writing... A lot of the music that was going on there, there was, you know, there was a very strong outside influence from from outside of him, of the other members of the birthday party having musical input, um, much of which he didn't have that strong a relationship with. He expressed that quite clearly to me that he didn't really understand the birthday party's music by by the end of the day. He didn't really relate to it, and he wanted to do something else, but. To be honest, I think to that point, Nick hadn't really thought through what kind of music he wanted to be making. I think he was more interested in literature and painting originally and finding himself in a position in a band where um, 
he became concerned about the music. Represent, you know, he was the main representative, and he wanted the the musical output to reflect his ideas. And so, yeah, the start of the Bad Seeds for me looks now very much in hindsight like it was a, a search for what Nick wanted to be doing. Well, he always seemed to be this. He always seemed to be like a kind of like a true artist and he wanted to be an artist. Was it ever hard in in the birthday party days and even the early days of the Bad Seeds with conflict between the two of you to get him to really focus on the music? Um, no, we didn't. No, we didn't have really conflict um, about that. So that's why I kind of survived the transition from the birthday party into the Bad Seeds because we, we didn't really have any conflict of interest. Um, we never had any arguments about songwriting credits. We, um, you know, I was, I think the fact that I was just focused on um, arranging and, you know, sometimes co-writing, but also um, arranging and developing the, the musical aspects was really helpful to Nick when he went on his search for what he wanted to do himself. He knew that I would be, I wouldn't be, you know, it was obstructive or in his way at all, and that was really important. So, uh, you know, I, I feel the early albums was him searching, even through to Kicking Against the Pricks, where, you know, it was a whole lot of cover versions. That was also part of a search for, oh, what is it that I really want to be doing? You can almost see on all that uh, eclectic mix that is on Kicking Against the Pricks lots of the different styles of things that um, he's sort of done over the years, you know, from artistic reinterpretations to very moody, dark stuff to even quite romantic things and things that uh, uh, source genres like country and blues and, you know, it's all in there. It's like a great big potpourri of things that were coming in a way. And... um, that was part of the, him searching. And but you, you sort of talked about how we developed the sound. And again, out of that, out of those first few Bad Seeds albums, then we did Your Funeral, My Trial, and somehow the idea of what kind of things we could do musically just coalesced in a way. And it was really just came out of collaborative a collaborative search in a way, uh, which, as with the birthday party, uh, was never really discussed. We didn't really discuss what we were doing. I mean, with music, it's pretty hard to discuss. It's pretty hard to discuss music because it's uh, um, you can't. It's very hard to describe or, or define what's happening with music. You have to find that indefinable thing that you like, and then it's hard to talk about. So, <laughs> really, you just have to be on, on the same mission. You have to be like-minded and be in the same uh, taste and thought, thought patterns so that you can find the common ground that you can move forward with. So uh, somehow in those years we managed to do that a couple of times, once with the birthday party and when that had to change over to something else. And we managed to find that again with the bad seeds. And in the bad seeds it was very much me and Nick. Well, you, you kind speak- of. You know, more more than anyone else in the band, it was the, I, I sort of helped Nick develop that thing. I mean, he's uh, uh, he's acknowledged that lately, much to my surprise. Uh, quite 
overtly in some things that he said. So he's sort of, in hindsight, he's looked back and realised that, you know, we, we kind of made that journey together and that I really helped him put his musical ideas together and into some sort of form. So um, I'm not, mista- not that mistaken in that perception anyway. <laughs> well, have you kept up with, with what he has continued to do or have you just tried to block that out completely? Well, it's it's difficult when you leave something. Uh, I, I haven't blocked. No, I've certainly not blocked it out. But it is difficult when you leave something like uh, that, like that you've been so closely associated with and such a part of it. It's hard to see it continue without you. Uh, I know Blix is Blix, he, he he will go to anything of Nick's when when Nick comes to Berlin. Blix will go to anything of his, but he won't go to a bad seed show. And I, I understand why. It's it's kind of hard. It's like it's part of your. It's like uh, you know an ex, uh, a broken marriage or something. Mm-hmm. To go back, you know, it's it's tough. So and and not because you don't love it, and um, you know, it's not because you hate it. It's just, it's just hard emotionally. It's um, it, 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 there's con- you know, conflicting feelings there. So I've paid. Uh, uh, I've had a, been very interested in the three albums that the Bad Seeds have made since I left, and I think they really took a good direction after I left. That's the kind of thing I, I wish we'd been doing when I was still in the band, to be honest. I thought Dig Lazarus Dick was kind of heading down... Uh, I, I, I didn't think it was going down a very interesting path, and the Push the Sky Away is a, a much more interesting... Um, thing for the, for the bad seeds to have been trying to to do, you know, it's just much more different. It's much more unique and kind of has has its own. Uh, it, it gives um, space for the band to express themselves, and it has a unique sound and it isn't uh, caught up in. I, 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 you know, obviously, it's difficult for me to talk about that phase, but Dig Lazarus Dig was, uh, wasn't, for me, a very successful kind of album. and was caught up in the middle of the Grinder Man thing, which is fine, the Grinder Man thing's fine, but the Bad Seeds shouldn't have been caught up in the middle of that and had the things that were great about the Bad Seeds being pushed into the background while making a Bad Seeds album. So, you know, it was just one of the many things that were going on that, that uh, made me kind of want to get out of there. So, did, did you see your departure but, but, coming for a while, or did, was it kind of just that final oh, yeah, yeah. album? Yeah? Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. I, I, I could have left after the Boatman's Call. I could, uh, was, you know, we, we took a break there, and uh, it was not to do with the musical thing, because I think the Boatman, Boatman's Call is a great album. And stands up much at the time. It seemed like a kind of um, because it was such a personal statement from Nick, and it was so reduced, and all those sorts of things. You might imagine that that might be the reason, you know, that I didn't get to exercise my the power of my arranged mental abilities and all that sort of guff. But that, that wasn't at all the reason. I, I think uh, quite the contrary. I think the album demanded a lot of everyone in the bad seats and uh, uh, great performances on there and hearing it again because I've had to remaster those albums and prepare them for different formats and stuff and it's amazing how raw that album is but after that album with the thing it was more to do with things that were going on personally I was very much on the brink of just leaving 
in 97, 98, that we had a break. We took a hiatus from the band for a little while for a couple of reasons. And um, somehow when it all started up again, again, I was drawn back into the, the process. Um, so, no, it was something, you know, it was never like a... Um, obligatory that I remained in the band. I was always in a situation where if the circumstances didn't suit me that I felt I could leave and eventually it was a situation where there were a lot of things going on at that time in uh, whenever that was 2008, that kind of time. But the three albums since I left have been you know, obviously the last two the Skeleton Tree and um, the, the Ghostine album albums are, are both uh they're both remarkable records they're, they're quite incredible really the, the most recent one is not really a bad seeds album obviously as mm-hmm. the boatman's call wasn't really a bad seeds album i suppose they're the two that you could say they're, they're kind of more solo albums those two and um they're you know ghosting's remarkable i mean i and a lot, a lot of bad seeds fans don't go that's to be expected that's it's a very different sort of thing but you know what else was Nick going to make? It's the album he had to make. Mm-hmm. That's always been his uh, his driver. He he makes the the next thing that he has to make. It's, he's not going to uh, formulate his work around what <laughs> bad seats <laughs> fans might want. I mean, he's never. We've never done that. We never did that. So, and he's the driver of what's happening with the writing, obviously. So. Well, speaking of musical feelings earlier, when you switched over to playing percussion, did you find like it was easier for you to express the kinds of sounds that you were looking for at the time? Or did you always prefer to be behind the guitar? Um, well, I never uh, I never minded being one of the guitar players. I mean, in the birthday party, my guitar playing developed really quite a lot. I mean, most of the birthday party stuff until well, the latter recordings, you know, there's two guitars on most of it. And uh, Roland and I had a very uh, good interplay and the the guitar work goes, you know, there's great interplay between the, the guitar playing and uh, I really enjoyed that enormously. Um, didn't really think about it. I mean, uh, I, because of my... Um, ability to pick things up quickly on instruments, whatever that is, I don't know. Um, I would very often just be given the extra instrument that somebody wanted to be, so I ended up being on keyboards a lot. This was just kind of a, as a result of that, I, you know, learned how to play keyboards badly. And um, then somehow I ended up doing uh, the drumming as well, at some point, uh, it was more to do with uh, the ideas for the drumming that I, I became caught up in, in doing that stuff. And eventually, my ideas for the drumming became <laughs> more, more difficult for someone else to execute. And uh, I had to start playing some of them too. But it was, it, was never, um, it was never out of a preference for one thing or another. I've always been... Uh, I don't mind what I play. I, I, I've never minded what I play in the group as long as I'm in any group as long as uh, as long as I'm involved in the whole I just enjoy being part of the whole process uh, I, I, I read a thing recently 
with Roland where he was talking about that and saying, oh, Mick Harvey always used to say he didn't mind uh, which instrument he played or not playing the guitar, and he, he found it hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> he just said, I find that hard to believe. I'd be, you know, like this. And I'd say, well, that's what you're like. I'm like this. I never minded. I really never minded. It was always about the whole thing for me. And I, I, was, I just wandered through all of that uh, unconcerned about uh, what, what, how I was being moved around, as long as I felt comfortable on what I was being moved to. I didn't mind, you know. If they tried to make me play trumpet, I probably would have been unhappy. But um, not because I don't like I like trumpet. I just can't play the thing. Um, <laughs> so, you know. That, yeah. So for me, it's always been like I, I never minded at all. But I also didn't mind being a guitar player. I mean, at the end of the Bad Seeds, my tenure in the Bad Seeds, I was like, uh, I think the prospect was that I was going to be going back to. You know, being more like having less uh, less hands-on, probably you know, not so much in the management, not not as hands-on with a lot of the things anymore because the band had developed and changed and Nick was in collaboration so much with Warren by then. And uh, it was it felt more like going back to just being playing guitar in the band and playing guitar and a bit of keyboards. And I didn't mind that. that I didn't mind at all. I had no problem with that. So um, I actually enjoyed that. I know that sounds weird. People find, must find that hard to believe. I, just really just not, <laughs> you know, and well, it's like if I go out, you know, if I go out on tour with PJ Harvey, I'm playing keyboards and bass, mm-hmm. and I'm not making decisions, and I'm not the main driver of the arrangements, and all that. I love that. I was going to say, is I that like that. It... I've gone on two? I've gone on two world tours with her. I had had no kind of desire to be 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 more influential or more in control of what was happening and i'm just enjoying playing the music and i I don't see what's so absurd about that that's like people assume that i'm a control freak or i want to be in charge of things and it's not necessarily the case that kind of happened by default so i didn't mind that it happened by default and i was happy to do those things too but it's just just not what my ambition is so do you almost so find just, it? Do you almost find it cathartic when you get to go play with PJ, just letting her call the shots? No, no, it's not cathartic. No, it's not. It's just what it is. Might sound kind of Buddhist of me, but it, I just <laughs> I honestly take things as they come along like that. I, and I, my my set of ambitions are not what people might think they are. You know, so I'm just in, in any guys and in any of those situations i'm just happy to be as, as long as i feel like i'm i'm contributing something worthwhile and enjoying the music and i'm just happy to be doing that that's all i've ever really been doing and when it's fallen to me to be in charge of what's happening or responsible for the arrangements or the production i've just taken those jobs on as they've come along it's not because somebody needed to be doing them in in the scheme of things so um you know to back off from doing those jobs also is fine if they're being taken care of by somebody else they're a huge responsibility those jobs sometimes you know i would actually have a a desire to go back to can i just play on you can i just go back to play (laughs) i mean maybe that's what you thought about being cathartic with with Polly, I don't think it, it wasn't really that wasn't really the choice though. That wasn't. Uh, it is different, 
when that happens and quite and I enjoy it, but it's on a different level. It's not really, uh, uh, it's not, wasn't my choice for it to be that way. It wasn't what I was searching for and it didn't really operate on a cathartic level. It was just enjoyable. So um, anyway. When you contacted Simon, did you think that you two were going to end up reforming Crime in the City Solution or did you think that there was going to be another band coming out of your two's collaboration? doing something because he'd been in a bit of a he'd been in a, a lull for a couple of years like two or three years since he'd really had a band and um we all thought he was uh, someone who uh, had great potential he'd seen he had two versions of that band with quite different lineups apart from the drummer mm-hmm. and they'd both been they'd both had this particular hypnotic kind of atmosphere and we thought he was you know really brilliant and um, we just wanted to get him doing something. So I, I seemed to, I thought I had uh, time on my hands. Uh, the, birth, the, the birthday party wasn't going anymore. The bad seeds hadn't really even formulated into a proper thing yet. And uh, I just saw that as an opportunity to get Simon doing something. So, you know, uh, that, that he wanted to continue calling it City Solution, that was his decision. A lot of the things like that were his decision. Um, when that first lineup with the, I always felt the first lineup with the Howard Brothers never quite found its its real direction. It always felt like it was struggling to get to the point where it, you know, where it was just happening naturally. And um, you know, we still made some some good things. There's some good recordings from that period. But you know, the, the Berlin lineup with Alex Hucker and and down and with Bromman playing in the band as well, I, I felt was much more successful musically. And um, anyway, but that's um, I can't remember what the original question was about Simon. <laughs> it, it was just like was was the initial intention to reform the band, or was it no, to no, start it something no. completely new? Well, for me, it was just to get him to do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was no there was no thought about exactly what form it would take at first, and then Simon liked the idea of having a band. One, which is I don't know if I even had that specifically in mind at first. I just wanted him to get to do some recordings, and um, then he he came over to the UK where I was mostly based at that time, and uh, or I was always kind of going back and forth between London and Berlin. And uh, he came over to Europe, and, and then, of course, at the end of the first lineup of Crime, we started the second lineup, which was based in Berlin with uh, with mostly Germans or half Germans or something. But um, no, it was just about getting Simon to do something. I was it wasn't an attempt to to um, no. <laughs> I wasn't trying to reform his original group. That was his idea to call it that, and you know, it was just outside of the realm of my my control. It was outside my control. That sort of stuff. What the group was called, and that he wanted to have a normal group and all that sort of stuff. So but I just went along with that and tried to help him achieve that as best I could while I could put up with it. You know, and now it was really one of the few mistakes that I've made actually to be in two full time groups at the same time. That was really um, pretty heavy duty, especially as I was um, managing both bands, basically, and um, also kind of uh, I was you know the principal producer in both bands and things like that. So that was kind of tough. 
Well, it's funny that you mentioned the heavy workload because I find your solo career to be the most fascinating of all of your stuff, especially when you started translating those Surge songs. That that That's a heavy heavy undertaking to just start your solo career doing uh, yeah. that. That was, um, uh, yeah, the, the translations of Surge stuff was a very, uh, it was a big job to do that. And um, uh, that was always, the, you know, it's the kind of thing you can do at home and you while you're sitting around, you know, instead of watching a lot of movies for a little while, you just sit there trying to nut out the translations (laughs) um you know there's plenty of time to do this sort of stuff and uh, but it was a major job yeah and by the time i went in to actually uh do the recordings i'd I'd already been working on it for ages obviously preparing the translations the first thing i had to do was um, do a number of translations and try and understand whether it was even feasible how much french did you know beforehand Oh, my French is pretty, you know, my French is just okay. I had a lot of people helping me with the translation, so I had people preparing them. My French was good enough to understand. If if I had an expert doing a translation and pointing out to me where the word plays were and stuff like that, to, to be able to go back and then reconfigure the English version so that it was actually closer to the to the French version than what I'd been presented. So, you know, getting the rhyming schemes correct and um, and the meter of the singing and everything, which had to obviously had to it had to be singable and stuff like that. So that was uh, with the first couple of albums, most of my work on the translations was to do with actually configuring the English version rather than uh, actually translating from the starting point. Um, I think you would see, I think probably there's a few different translators credited on those two albums. Um, probably by the last two albums, and I've done two more, the, uh, the recent ones, um, you know, it's a different world now. You can actually get Google Translate in there, and my <laughs> French is a lot better. My French is a lot better, and I've also still had a couple of experts around who could explain to me where the word plays I might be missing were or where there was slang which you know these sorts of things which are really important to understanding what's going on in there but essentially I could prepare them a lot of them just by myself so um, uh, and then just take advice about what I'd missed or what I'd got wrong or you know whatever so um, again that was the the third and fourth I was a a lot of work in that preparation but uh, uh with the first two, you know, by the time I'd finished the recordings, the basic recordings, and I'd got to the point of the string arrangements, I just, um, I was exhausted, uh, <laughs> which is which is why I, I uh, got Bertrand Dorgelard, the French guy, in to kind of help me with it. I mean, he'd actually, he, he actually contacted me and offered to do it, which was just like, from heaven, you know, it's just like, oh, thank goodness, please, yeah, somebody somebody take on a, a job like that where so I can just sit back and enjoy it. So um, that took some of the workload off me, having done so much translating and then, you know, recording and arranging and was producing it and then the string, the strings just came in from some, from outside and were magnificent and I was just like, oh, yeah, it's great. 
Well, and and then came sketches from the Book of the Dead. Personally, this is my favorite album that you've ever done. And I think it's a beautiful culmination of your entire career up to that point, even to now. If I go back and listen to it, I think it's a brilliant record. Where did that come from? Well, you know, the, well, where did it come from? I mean, I started, so after the Gainsbourg, so I did do a couple of albums. I did One Man's Treasure and Two of Diamonds, mm-hmm. which was mostly delving into, you know, I was just looking at doing other song-based material that was, meant a lot to me. And um, I'm not really a prolific songwriter or not even really a songwriter at all in some ways, but I, obviously I do write some songs and... Um, but very rarely, you know, I'll write a song every, you know, once a year or something. Something will come up and I'll find that I've written a song. But um, I don't know, like a lot of people, I don't know what this is with um, musicians. Uh, there seems to be a very high attrition rate in the musicians' community. Maybe it's just in artists' communities, you know, but a lot of people who died of drug-related things or died early and... Um, I suppose I was just going through one of those sort of uh, existential moments where I was thinking a lot about uh, people who were no longer with us and people were dying. And um, I found that I'd written a couple of songs quite quickly. And uh, in fact, I might have had three, which was very unusual. And uh, uh, I realised that um, there was an idea for a project there but that I'd have to write it. So I couldn't do cover versions because, you know, I could, there were the, the songs just didn't exist for me to to make the project without writing it. So uh, that was quite a challenge, but I just set myself the task of... Uh, I took the, took the idea of uh, Louise Bunuel's Book of the Dead, which he used to have... I don't know if you've read about this. He, he used to have a book on a lectern. I think it was on a lectern. It was like a large book. And when, when one of his friends or family would die, he would enter their name and place their death in this book. And uh, I suppose I uh, took a lead from that and just made a list. I suppose it should really, the album should really be called The List of the Dead, maybe. So it's a bit grand, isn't it? Um, and... I suppose I just looked at that and I had that as a, a guide in a way as to who or what I could write songs about. So then I would just, I just tried to write the songs that I felt were appropriate to to the project. And um, uh, over time, you know, over uh, over a period of time, I, I found that I had a collection of songs there. So. It came just out of that, um, you know, it sounds morbid, but interest in that subject matter, just dealing with loss, and um, which is something that Nick's been doing in extremis in recent times. But, you know, I, I was... It's, it's something that comes back to me from time to time too. It's just something I... Um, I mean, everybody deals with this, or they look at it, maybe I just look at it in a slightly different way. I'm not sure... I just have a, um, I try and have a relationship with that, an understanding of what that is with the, the people who are gone and how that, um, just processing that, trying to understand it. That's all. It's a pretty simple thing in a way. 
but um, that's something that comes back to me a lot still today. So that album kind of um, was, uh, I suppose, what um, what all art should be. It's kind of a, a manifestation of, of things that are a deep and abiding interest for me, for, for the artist, and for, in this case for me. So, And then you kind of put that together and put it out there and see if, you know, everybody hates it. <laughs> Nobody hates it, but a, 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 people would find that record pretty hard listening. But um, you know, I, my solo stuff—I've really never been interested in in it being anything but difficult. I'm quite happy for the for the material I do to be to be difficult. You know, I'm not trying to make popular music. So, um, uh, if you understand what I mean by that, it's yeah, of not course. just um, I'm just. Uh, I'm quite free to follow. I feel quite free to follow the most difficult path I can <laughs> that I can conceive of because uh, I, I don't really imagine I'm going to find enormous commercial success with my solo stuff. So it can really be whatever I want it to be. I, I want to talk about what I think is your most underrated part of your career, and that's your film soundtracks and your film score work. How did that all come to be? And was it something that you always wanted to get into? Was the film world? Um, yeah, look, I think a lot of musicians uh, love the idea of doing film music. It, it, to any kind of creative musician who um, is worth their salt in terms of what they're contributing arrangement-wise or compositionally to a band they're in, the prospect or notion of doing a film soundtrack is very attractive. So... Um, I guess I wasn't alone in that. You know, I felt that that was something that I'd be interested to look at doing. And I was in Berlin in the mid-'80s, and my skill set, I guess you call it, had expanded. It just kind of developed over time. It's continued, you know, being self-taught, but I'd learned quite a lot. And um, I was given the opportunity to do a couple of... Uh, to work on a couple of things for, because people could see what my abilities were and just thought I might be able to do it. And, um, of course, anybody can do it. Anybody can do it. There's just whether they're good or bad at it, really. So um, uh, I find in terms of the what I compose the films and the ideas I have about how the music should be or could be that I'm mostly quite successful in that application and I really enjoy that actual part of the work but uh i think i'm probably really unsuited to the uh political and the the kind of um the aspects around it which uh the collaborative aspects are difficult with film because there's too many people <laughs> involved <laughs> a lot of the time if I were just able to work with the person who's really the auteur of the film, like the director usually, and just work with that person and understand the vision properly, then it all goes very well. But as soon as there's uh, executive producers and different people putting in their two bowls worth and editors kind of putting on scratch music that they expect you to copy, it all just can turn into quite... It can become quite problematic. And... Um, I find more and more that I'm 
less and less interested in doing more film work, actually. So uh, that's, um, you know, if people came to me with the right, it's, more, it's even more difficult now because, uh, from my perspective, because a lot of editors uh, have become quasi um, musical directors because they are editing the films and, and just putting music on as they go and editing to that music. They never used to be able to do that so easily. Mm-hmm. Now they can just throw music anywhere. And I think a lot of editors have lost the the art of editing and having their own rhythm with the pictures. And, you know, and this is a great loss to uh, to filmmaking, actually, in my opinion. But uh, And it also makes it very difficult for the composer. Well, speaking, speaking of our... Uh, an overlay of rhythms and stuff and, and a lot of the decision-making about what would work with the film is kind of taken away from you and you have to work to somebody else's overlay, somebody else's concept and try and fit your ideas into some, some other concept, which is really hard. It's very hard for me to do that. I don't, you know, sorry, you were saying. Well, speaking of filmmakers with a very direct vision... I've worked with Andrew Dominic myself on Assassination of Jesse mm-hmm. James. Would you say that your work on Chopper was the closest to what you wanted film score to be? Or was it or, or were you still getting producers in your hair on that one? Oh no, 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 not at all. No, you see the the, the situations most of the situations things where I've actually completed work on films and and documentaries and things like this. There's usually, almost, like, I can't think there is an instance where that hasn't been the case, is where it has worked well, you know. So Andrew came to me just wanting... They didn't want any original music orig- uh, at first in that film. They didn't think it would need any score. And after they'd made the film and basically put it together, uh, he realised that it did need some music. Mm-hmm. So he came to me and... Um, and it really, it's really like half a score, actually. It only needed about 10 or 12 minutes of music, that film. Um, and I was just given free reign to, so, you know, come up with what I thought was the right thing for... We probably discussed where, which scenes needed some music, and that was probably about it. And he gave me a couple of guide things. He sort of played me a couple of things that he liked. That was the end of it. So there was no, yeah, absolutely. That was very open, and I was able to do whatever I wanted, and just presented what I'd come up with, and it all worked really well. It's a really good collaborative situation, yeah. So I'm certainly not talking about him or Paul Goldman or the successful things that I had, or even more recently the documentary I did on the Anzacs, which that soundtrack's just come out. You know, all of those things were um, uh, film work as a composer working in the way I would like, being the way I would like it to mm. be. So the, the things that have not worked out have been, you know, there have been a couple of films that I started work on or whatever and uh, that didn't work out because the communication wasn't right and the expectation, you know, or the reasons that I've cited previously. Mm-hmm. So just, then I'm perceived as a difficult composer, you know, <laughs> when you, you know, own something that they've, uh, you know, cloned some music that they've 
foisted on you as scratch music. Oh, well, we really love this piece of music over this scene. And the usual dialogue is, I'll tell it to you, the usual dialogue is they show you the rough cut of the film and it's got some music on it in places. And every single piece they go through and they go, now we know this isn't the right kind of music, but I like what it does here with this. And then by the time you've worked on it for a few weeks and you come back, you... Lo and behold, they've started deciding that this piece of music they've put there is actually the right piece of music Mm -hmm. and they want you to copy it. And that's like a nightmare. (laughs) And then you're sitting there saying, yeah, but actually it's not the right piece of music. And you knew that three or four weeks ago. You've just become used to it. You've become married to this piece, seeing it over and over again on this scene. You've become used to it and it feels right to you now, but it was never the right piece of music for this. This is happening on a lot of films these days, I think. Um, And quite often I can see where they've replaced an existing piece. I can even identify the piece that they've replaced sometimes. It's like, ah, they've just replaced the Arvo piece with something similar in this shot and then, you know, or they've... they've, uh, there was one documentary particularly about an Australian artist I saw where, where someone had just re- cloned two Cream songs and I could tell you which ones they were. You know, you could tell still, but they, they weren't in breach of copyright, but I could I could identify which Cream songs they were. That's just appalling. I mean, that's a terrible thing to do to a, a composer. Well, I want, to, <laughs> uh, I want to go back to something that you said earlier, that you're working on a documentary I know that you're a really big history buff. Can we expect it to have something to do with maybe World War One, World War Two? No, I, I, there is actually a script that I developed for a particular document about something in World War One, but that was the, did this about five years ago, and that's still sitting there. I'd, I'd still like to to do that, but it would require using archive footage, and uh, I just need to have the right space of time and headspace to do that. No, this is more, this is a, um, uh, no, it's, just, it's actually just a, how could I describe it without going, see, I don't really like talk about projects until they're fairly well developed and uh, actually likely to happen, because mm-hmm. otherwise you talk hot air, really. And um, that's actually a document about, uh, it's kind of historical, yeah, but it's not, uh, not sure quite what historical context I could describe it as it's like like, it's kind of like a history of a well it's history of something in Australia but using the old the idea is to use the old historical information with pictures of the modern day so um I've taken you know I'm hoping to make it later in the year to actually shoot the proper stuff later in the year with my son and um if you'll do it with me and I'm just still preparing the script, which would be mostly narration. So it's kind of, but it would be a kind of documentary. Well, I'm very excited to hear that. If it needs any music, I'll do the music. And uh, <laughs> I'll only have myself to answer to. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mick, I want to thank you so much for coming on here. It means a lot to me. And I, your story is immensely fascinating. And I, I wish you nothing but the best. I hope that we get to see lots Thank of stuff you. from Thank you, you in the upcoming future and hopefully see you back on stage live sometime. Who, who the hell knows back when? Back on stage in my wheelchair. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm getting on. I'm getting on a bit. I'm be sitting down. Anyway. <laughs> no, thank you for uh, your kind words and for um, for being interested in all that stuff. That's great. It's always, it's always flattering for me. So. Thank you for listening. 
Head over to MickHarvey.com to keep up with all things Mick. And this concludes our broadcast day.